We are starting a new book of the Bible, 1 Peter, as we go verse by verse through this. The theme is navigating through life's difficulties. And beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begun has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This was written to Christians who are in the midst of a great suffering in their lives that were these trials, these persecutions, and many other difficulties. This was written about 64-65 A.D., and that's significant because it was in 64 A.D. that Caesar, a Caesar named Nero, started a full-scale launch on Christians, persecuting them horribly. Of course, all this began in Rome, and at this time, in the summer of 64 A.D., Rome had suffered horrible fires. Nero believed that portions of Rome were not, were not really Rome. These portions were built out of wood. They didn't have the, the grandeur of marble, stones, or granite. They actually made Rome... Rome. But no doubt to the population who lived in Rome, it was Nero who started these fires. And unfortunately, those fires got out of control and much of Rome was burnt and destroyed. So there was really a great bitter uproar among the people towards Nero. It was so great that it threatened Nero's power and reign as Caesar. So he needed a scapegoat. So he picked a group of people who were very much unrepresented in the world politically and powerless politically. So Nero blamed this group and that group, of course, was Christians. But listen, these folks in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia had not yet seen this kind of persecution, but they did have Roman outposts and Roman cities in those areas of Turkey, so it was going to head that way. And so Peter is giving these guys a heads up of a great persecution that was heading their way. So Peter wrote this to provide encouragement for Christians during the season of unprecedented persecution and suffering. He wanted to give them an eternal perspective along with practical instruction for those who are facing trials and about to face even greater trials. And thus, the theme of this book is navigating life's difficulties or living the Christian life in the context of suffering. And so in verse 2, it talks about the elect. And when we became saved, we became his children, his elect. His choice of us is related to his foreknowledge, which means God knows everything. And him knowing everything is also known as his omniscience. Him knowing everything is a complete knowledge of everything that is absolutely going to happen long before it ever happens. As stated in Acts 15, known to God from eternity are all of his works. But as this relates to our salvation, God chose for salvation those he foreknew who would ultimately trust in Jesus Christ. This is also known as God's election, God's predestination. You can look at Romans 8, 28 through 30 to see that more closely. So I want you to understand the important theological doctrine that's stated here. God chose us to be saved before the foundation of this world. And, that, and Paul tells us that in Ephesians 1, 4. God chose me, he chose you who are Christians to be saved before this world was ever created. 
And when we give our lives to the Lord in trusting in him for our salvation, because we have done so, because he first chose us. Jesus told his disciples, you didn't choose me, but I chose you first. But listen, one of the mistakes people make when it comes to God's elect or election or predestination is to assume that God God chose some to be saved, then he must also have chosen some not to be saved. But the Bible doesn't ever speak of predestination in the context of the lost, only in the context of the saved. But a person might say, well, if you use logical conclusion to all this, then that's the law. Well, God actually isn't interested in our logic because God is smart enough to figure this out. If the implication of some are ordained to be saved while others are not, well, God would have stated that in his word, if that would be the conclusion. But God does not state that for himself because it is not true. I believe we have to be careful that we honor the distinction in God's word. Just because he predestined some to be saved doesn't mean he's predestined others to be lost. And in some circles, not this is only in some circles, but in some circles of Reformed theology, that is the assumption. And somehow in the law of God, predestination and election, it can be safely and accurately applied to the saved, but it cannot be safely applied to the lost. God does not predestine people to hell. Peter himself said this, it's God's will that none should perish, but all come to repentance. God's will that none should perish. So he doesn't predestine people to hell. So understand God's word does teach God's predestination as we just talked about. But also the Bible teaches about man's free moral agency or human responsibility concerning his own salvation. Man is also free to choose or reject God's Savior or God's salvation, thus will be held responsible for that choice. So how do we reconcile these two totally different things? I mean, if God chooses, then how can I be held responsible? And if I choose, then how can God get credit for my salvation? And of course, the one explanation is there in verse 2 where it says that God chooses out of his foreknowledge. But we also have to understand making man responsible for his own decisions to be saved or lost. We're taught that in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever. So that's speaking of the whole world. That's speaking that that's God's will, that none should perish. He wants to have everybody have the opportunity to come to the truth of the Bible. But there, but there are, you know, if there are any difficulties when these two truths are taught in the Bible, it actually has to do with our minds, not in God's mind. It makes perfect sense in the infinite mind of God, but it makes no sense in man's finite mind. So the problem lies in our minds, not God's mind. Thus, man's been arguing this in their minds with each other for about 500 years. One guy was asked how he reconciled God's sovereignty and man's responsibility when it comes to salvation. He says, I don't reconcile good friends. And I like that because it can seem as if they're at war with one another in our minds But from God's perspective, the view from heaven, they are not enemies at all, but they are very good friends. The Bible believes both of these truths, thus I am to teach both of these truths. Listen, a God small enough to understand is not worthy to be worshipped. If I can understand God, then he would be smaller than my mind. Then why in the world would I worship something smaller than me? Listen, Christian, you might as well get used to mystery when it comes to God and to act in faith of the information that he gives us 
in his word. Now, to them, when Peter says the elect, knowing that they are chosen, they were chosen before the foundation of this world, is a great encouragement to these guys as they're going through great persecution, that you guys are going to make it to heaven. God has chosen you. But also, it says in verse 4, that we have an inheritance. That's exciting to think about. If you're in someone's will, you know someday you will have an inheritance. Someone loved you enough to include you to have those things that they worked hard for throughout life. That's the same idea that we have in God's will. But it's not when he dies, because he doesn't, that we collect. No, it's when we die, we collect that inheritance. And that's how it refers, and, and it refers to heaven and all the blessings of heaven. Just, listen, whatever Christians have been denied in this life because of their faith in Jesus Christ, listen, be it physical or be it emotional, will be more than made up for in heaven. And then the last part, not only do we have an inheritance, it says it's reserved for us. It's there already. It's stored, and it has our name on it under those reservations. So what encouraging things say, you're God's elect, you're gonna make it to heaven, and plus, you have an inheritance and it's reserved in your name. And then it goes on to say in verse six, that in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though you do not see him, yet you believe, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the very end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So we understand that bad things happen to good people. We understand that bad things happen even to good Christians or Christians. That's the problem with evil. But listen, once that begins to happen, we can lose perspective of how can a God of love allow this to happen to me? And listen, to lose perspective in a trial is the worst time in life to lose perspective. Our depth of perspective gets lost even more when we know God is all-knowing and all-powerful and he does nothing about it. It was the fall of man that man has all of its troubles. It is sin in the world that we have bad things happen to good people because of sin. That's why we have disasters. It's because of sin. That's why we have hurricanes and cyclones that wipe out communities of very innocent, good people. It's because of sin. That's why we have starvation of small children who've done nothing wrong in the world. It's because of sin. That's why we have wars and hatred and marriage problems because of sin. But listen, what happens when a Christian loses perspective in a trial? Listen, they may remain confident in his love for them, but they lose confidence in that he is all-powerful. Because if he was all-powerful, then why wouldn't he bring justice to this situation? Then on the other end of the spectrum, they might believe in his power, but since he has not done anything, then they believe he doesn't love me or he's mad at me. See, that's known as lost perspective in difficulties. There's a couple of things that, that Peter brings out in our trials, in our difficulties, in our suffering for God's purposes. And the first one is it's to test our faith. It's to test our faith, you know, which means a genuineness of our commitment to our Lord. When that trial doesn't drive us away from the Lord, but closer to him, it's an encouragement to us that we have genuine faith. We're not fair-weather friends of God. And listen, it's important that we have our faith tested because faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. We want to have that. 
And so we, our faith will be tested in these times of trials to see if we're fair weather friends, if we really got a genuine faith or not. And so God's looking for that. Number two, the second thing is, is that trials purify our faith. Basically, our faith has impurities attached to it. But this fire, that trial, like gold, purifies our faith. As gold is put into the fire and the heat of that fire melts it down, the impurities found in that gold begin to separate itself from the gold itself. You see, it's in a trial, the impurities that it's in our life begins to come out. The impurities, like I've never talked like that to my husband or my wife until I got married to them. We're going through a marriage trial and all of a sudden these impurities start coming out that we had no idea was even there. And a goldsmith would scrape out these impurities that have now separated itself from the gold. In the ancient days, the goldsmith would know he has removed enough of the impurities when he could see his reflection now in the gold. And as our faith is purified in our trials, stuff is coming out of us that we didn't know that was there, God sees his reflection in our lives, and we know we are becoming more in the image of his son, Christ Jesus, as the process of impurities of our faith is now being removed. And listen, so in the trials that we are going through, they're preparing us for that kind of entrance into heaven. Fire makes gold more pure, and it makes gold more valuable. And in the same way in our trials, in that fiery trial we're going through, it makes our faith more pure, and it makes our faith more valuable. The last few verses here say this, And of this salvation the prophets have inquired, and, scrat and, and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have come reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These are things which an angels desired to look into. So Peter kind of ends the, our teaching today on this portion of suffering as a reminder of the prophecies of Christ, the prophecies that he was to suffer. That's in Daniel 9 and, and Psalm 22 and Psalm 16 and Isaiah 53. Those tremendous trials and sufferings that he would go through, yet somehow, some way, he was going to be reigning over an eternal kingdom. These things were not compatible with each other. A suffering Messiah, a reigning Messiah. I mean, the prophets, the people, even angels didn't know how all this was going to happen. It didn't make sense to them. How's all this going to work for good? Now, we clearly look upon it today and understand that his death, burial, and resurrection and how, how he ended up through all that to reign, sitting at the right hand of God, holding the keys to death and Hades. Now, we see it now, but they didn't see any of that. A suffering Messiah and a reigning Messiah. They couldn't reconcile that, kind of like today. People have a hard time reconciling God's sovereignty and man's free will. We don't see it. We don't see how those lines came together. And back in the Old Testament, they could not see how a suffering Messiah and a reigning Messiah, those lines could come together. So they disregarded one and, and camped out on the other. They disregarded the suffering prophecies, and they just hung on to the reigning. That we've got a Messiah that's going to rule and reign in Jerusalem and didn't even want to consider the suffering. And many times that happens today in, in, in the sovereignty of God and the, uh, in man's, you know, responsibilities. Sometimes we just camp out on one of them and disregard the other one, even though they're in the Bible. But so Peter is, is encouraging us to make Jesus an example of faith and our surrender and suffering. 
Because if you think about it, if God can take the greatest atrocity to ever happen on earth, that his son will be crucified by Jews and Gentiles alike and hung on a cross and die, if God can take that horrible thing that happened to his son and turn it around for good, we have to understand whatever we might be going through, God can take that and believe as Jesus is our example, and he can turn it around for our good. So we, we draw hope from Christ in our lives as we go through times of suffering. 